This is Passing for Normal, conversations with artists, activists, and awakeners about how they are seeding change in the world. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, and here I speak with fascinating, innovative change makers. We talk about how to make change, meet change, and how to find the courage to create change in your life and with those around you. Bringing new ideas into the mainstream, that's Passing for Normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal, where my guest today is Ping Ho, founding director of UCLA Arts and Healing, whose mission is to transform lives through creative expression by integrating the innate benefits of the arts with mental health practices for self-discovery, connection, and empowerment. This includes the transformative power of art, music, dance, writing, and other art forms. Ping Ho has been an organizer in integrative medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles since 1985. Besides being the founding director of UCLA Arts and Healing, she was the founding administrative analyst for both the UCLA Collaborative Centers for Integrative Medicine and the UCLA Cousins Center for Psychoneuroimmunology. In the latter role, she had the privilege of writing for Norman Cousins and co-writing the professional autobiography of George F. Solomon, M.D., founder of the field of psychoneuroimmunology. And today, we're going to be talking about that fertile space between art and healing. So, welcome, Ping. Thank you. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I'm so uh, incredibly interested in how you are bringing art and, uh, and health and healing together? Well, that is actually a, a wonderful question because a lot of times when I talk to people out in the street and mention what we're doing, they look perplexed as to, well, how is this different from the arts? Just, you know, I'm going to paint or I'm going to sing or I'm going to dance. It's very different. Um, Typically, we have a conservatory mentality uh, about the arts. In fact, I always love to ask my audiences first, how many of you have ever said to yourself, I can't sing, dance, act, draw, or write? Mm-hmm. You know, and nearly every hand goes up. Right. Um, and then how many of you have ever known somebody who isn't terribly good at it, but they do it anyway because they love it? And every hand goes up. And that's our birthright. Um, there are some benefits of art making that um, we can enhance. And um, it's the enhanced uh, aspect that um, leads to the therapeutic benefits. So, for example, um, the arts innately are powerful at uh, shifting positive emotions, that they are uniquely capable of shifting uh, positive emotions um, as opposed to just reducing negative emotions. And um, the arts also, because they occupy so much of the brain, they can calm the stressed brain down and enable the upper brain, the rational brain, the part of the brain that makes decisions and connects with others and engages ethically and all these things to, um, to operate um, as opposed to being interfered with by the stress reactions. And uh, so we take, and, and they also enable us to express what's within, mm-hmm, um, which yes. is very important um, when, for example, in trauma or um, deep stress of any sort or um, cultural inhibitions or disabilities interfere with the ability to articulate what um, one is feeling inside. So you take all these innate benefits of the arts, and um, and then what we do is we 
use it as a process rather than focusing on the product or the performance, which is that conservatory mentality that interferes with people's participation. Mm -hmm. We actually use it as a process for self-discovery and connection and empowerment. And part of that process includes the language of non-judgment. So we don't judge anything that comes out. We don't tell somebody that their work is beautiful. We just merely engage them in dialogue about the meaning of what they did for themselves. And um, we also uh, use reflection and sharing as a process to help people under, un, uh, discover the meaning of what they did and then be able to share it with others. And that connection is also um, unique to the arts, the ability to provide a a space and, a, and an activity that groups of people can do together to help support one another and also um, to help um, shift their understanding of, what, of, of one another and what they did because of the sharing and the connection. And we know from uh, research in the trauma area that connectivity is incredibly important for healing um, that people who have been traumatized are often very distanced from themselves and their own feelings and other people. And it's that moment of connection that is therapeutic. So um, this is another thing we do. We sit in circles. We work with synchrony where people are sharing and doing similar things or responding to each other. Um, if, uh, Like in the acting world, if I do something, then you, you kind of run with it. You don't say, no, that one I can't deal with. Um, and that is a, a form of empathy in a way that we connect with each other organically. Um, so what we've noticed is when we do this work in the community, um, we find that people open up and share things that they've sometimes never shared with anyone else in their lives before, only to discover that other people in the room have had the same experience. And then within the space of an hour, a room full of strangers literally becomes each other's closest confidant. Mm -hmm. It is the most amazing thing to witness and yet something very difficult to describe to someone else. Um, it's best actually experienced. And uh, this is why we're actually trying to um, teach people how to do this. And we have training programs where anybody can learn to use some of these tools that um, are grounded in the field of mental health. However, we're not calling it therapy. Um, therapy is identifying and treating disorders and um, you know, it's important to make that distinction. We work with therapists. We work with creative arts therapists who actually um, have dual expertise in the arts and mental health, and they can do things that the general public can't do. However, they do things that some things that the general public can do. And what we're trying to do is take those tools, teach them to other people, so that there's a safety net for people in education and healthcare in social services, in mental health, that there's a way that people can participate um, in this work and enhance the work that they do uh, by giving them some practical, creative tools. It's so that's, beautiful. that's and our mission. That's our goal. And the name of that, um, the name of that program or the name of that uh, certif certification? Yes. So we have a certificate program in social-emotional arts, and we named it social-emotional arts because there didn't seem to be a word to describe that world or that work that lives between the arts and therapy, because there are the creative arts therapies. They live in the therapy domain. 
um, there's this gap in between of what we call supportive services or supportive social-emotional work that um, is aimed primarily at prevention, and this is the world we live in. So we call it social-emotional arts, um, and that we are trying to develop a new field of community health workers called social-emotional arts facilitators. And literally anyone can learn to do this work. Um, some people have natural um, uh, proclivities towards the work and, and learn it more easily. However, anyone can learn to use the tools. And in fact, one of the other ways in which we are trying to, um, well, there are two other key ways besides offering training programs that we're trying to, to make this work more accessible to everybody. One is we have an, an international conference that we hold that's experiential where people can sign up for um, experiential arts um, programs or workshops that uh, focus on different topics or different working with different populations, and they can attend one day or four days, and so there's that available. Plus, uh, we're also going to be um, publishing a book very shortly Ooh, um, tell that us. Is at, at uh, Creative Processes for Parents. Um, because there are a lot of parents out there in the universe. And the beauty of all this work is not just the benefits for the recipient of the work. It's also for the provider or the facilitator of the work. So it's aimed at self-care for parents. And the tools in it are also useful for anybody in any context. I think one of my biggest, funniest ahas was I took a training in um, – how to integrate the arts into uh, academic curriculum, um, you know, school mm -hmm, standards mm -hmm. a number of years ago. And I chose to be in the upper elementary track. And I had my big aha for the, for the four-day training was that stuff that is designed for upper elementary is perfect for the general public adult. <laughs> so, uh, simple. It's simple, right? It's simple, exactly. direct, yes. And we are all, um, we're all children inside, and many of us got, that's where we became inhibited at, at some yeah. point. At some point, we lose that enthusiasm when we were in kindergarten, <laughs> and then we become very self-conscious. And so, yeah, so the, so the w book, while it's aimed at uh, for parents, um, it actually has tools in it for everybody. That's incredible. I mean, haven't I heard that... that um somewhere in the elementary school years is when a lot of children stop drawing, stop singing, stop, uh, you know, that somehow they're told they have the message that they're not good enough or that, um, you know, they compare themselves to something that adults do and they say, well, I'm not good enough. And so that's an age when people shut down their, um, their expression and therefore the creativity that goes along with that. Yes, and there are two things I want to say about that. One is about self-judgment, and the other is about that period of life, that upper elementary, when we become peer-centric, we, you know, what our peers think becomes more mm -hmm. important to mm -hmm. us. And that's actually why that's a, a very sensitive time and a, a strategic time to introduce this kind of programming in schools, because that's a time when they, they're intrigued by and delighted by being in a group of their peers, and it's before they develop, you know, serious intolerance or whatever it is that, that we can catch the, um, the behavior challenges early and teach kids skills um, how to treat each other more um, 
positively and how to appreciate each other. So when you get a group of kids sitting in a, in a circle, we have a drumming program that integrates activities from group counseling into the drumming. It's called Beat the Odds. What we find is that when kids have a shared creative experience, they see each other differently because they're now playing the same notes, they're responding to each other, and all of a sudden it's a little metaphor for empathy. That person just noticed what I did, or these people have just responded to my direction. And um, it's, it's an organic way to bridge differences and to help people see each other differently and um, and it, and because it's in in a fun context, like whoever said fun was a bad thing. Yeah. If it's a fun context, they're yeah, enjoying each other and developing a sense of community. And we had a uh, we've trained a lot of mental health professionals, but one particular counselor in Los Angeles Unified School District took our tool, and we had given her a little flat frame drum. It's kind of like kind of, kind of looks like a drum head, right? Mm-hmm. And she took that drum head, and she had she put kids in her. Um, counseling group that ordinarily didn't get along with each other on the playground. And she um, had them pass the drum around as they shared things that she was asking them to share. And they grew to enjoy the process so much that they stopped fighting with each other on the playground because you don't beat up a member of your group. They they developed a group identity. So um, there's that element. And the other, just to go back to the self-judgment thing, what I've discovered in doing many, many presentations in the public for professional groups or whatnot is we are a, a society just um, burdened by self-judgment. That the moment you ask somebody to express themselves creatively, it pushes all those self-judgment buttons. I mean, you can literally see a visceral response in people when you say, okay, well, now we're going to move or mm-hmm. <laughs> sing. Yes. You know, no, God forbid, no, no, use no. our bodies. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> So um, and and so this provides an opportunity, and this is really how it's used in therapy or therapeutically outside of therapy. Is it's an opportunity, it's information. So we right. take that information, we take how you feel in that moment, trying to do this and try to understand how does this apply to your life? Are there other times and places when? You hold back, not trusting yourself, for example, when you are trying to express yourself. And, um, and this whole, this whole um, the aesthetic distance that's provided from actually creating something gives a sense of safety and expression um, that can then lead to deeper, meaningful dialogue. So um, it's yes. very, very, uh, it's, it's powerful. And, it's, and, and, and your work, too, Sharon, I must say, uh, you know, we're kindred um, we're in this, we're in this pool together, that it, you use movement as a metaphor for life and facilitate that self-discovery and, and internal yeah. awareness as, as well. I'd like to actually say that it's not a metaphor or it's not just a metaphor. You know, you said that this common drumming experience uh, was a metaphor for empathy. I would say that it actually is empathy. You actually mm. are creating empathy and having an experience of empathy. And so also the movement isn't a metaphor for how you move in life. It is literally how you move in life because when you, when you, um, make a common sound when you sound together. This is why people find chanting. So uh, chanting together or choral singing together. So, um, satisfying because it is, you are with, and you feel the literal vibration, right? You feel the vibration of the sound that you're making together. And it is, 
it is the sensation of unity. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that clarification. That was a the very important clarification. And um, it seems, and I also, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, oh, and it ahead. seems that, you know, what some of what you're doing in these groups that you're creating with adults or with children is that you are, um, you know, you say that at a certain point in the upper elementary age, there is a, there is a judgment and a peer judgment, you know, real sensitivity about the peers and how do I fit in. And in a way in creating these creative communities, whether they're an ongoing community or, you know, coming together for a workshop or for a moment, um, you're actually placing those communities of judgment with a community of support. Yes, and I want to mention that support is critical. So the, the psycho field of psychoneuroimmunology actually um, has shown biologically that reducing stress and enhancing support actually improves our health and our resistance to disease. Yeah. So um, there's, there's an important connection there between support and our health in general. And um, I also want to piggyback on something you said. We're talking about feelings and empathy. So what often happens when people are trying to cope with a deeply stressful event or uh, trauma is another word for for that, um, is that uh, people can shut off their feelings. They they literally tune out of what their body's feeling Mm -hmm. inside because it's too painful and they can't function. And what ends up happening is they lose that ability to tune in and then they don't know how they feel and then they don't know how other people feel and they then that's when behaviors start popping up almost um, inconsistently because these feelings kind of come out in uh, unpredictable ways. And when uh, one has this opportunity to experience feelings again in, in a safe setting, that it actually helps people move through that more easily later when the feelings come up, and it helps them to identify feelings now again, to relearn how to do that, and also to relearn that they can shift out of those feelings. Because children in particular, I, I think, are vulnerable to the fact that they're scared when something happens and they keep, they feel like they're going to be depressed forever or mm-hmm. angry yeah. forever. Yes, yes, yes. And when they learn that, wow, uh, I don't have to be angry forever, it's very, it builds resilience. And what we noticed in a, a group of sixth graders in a deeply uh, grieving situation. So apparently this, this teacher told us that 19 out of 27 kids were grieving and grieving oh over gosh. really horrible things. Oh my gosh. And um, as soon as they, they started that drumming program with us, she said she saw children laughing and smiling for the first time in months. Mm. And, uh, and so you know that even though that, that might have been a brief moment for them, what they learned in that moment was powerful, that they don't have to be depressed or angry or whatever forever. So, um, yes, so this work is simple and profound. Yes, it's simple and profound and, and very direct, you know, in a yeah. way that perhaps talking about one's feelings or talking about the trauma can't really address. Because, oh, you know, talking. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, you are, you are talking about uh, providing experiences that are um, allowed the grief to move. Let's, you know, we'll use the word, we'll use the emotion of grief, allow it to move, allow it to uh, take a new shape, allow it to have a different story, allow it to, um, 
have uh, have company, right? Even yeah. like you said, through everyone making sound, and therefore people are not carrying that um, without it being able to move in some way. Yes, absolutely. Um, that stuckness, it's kind of interesting. Um, that's uh, from the Chinese medicine point of view, it's a stuckness is what actually um, damages our health, any emotional or physical stuckness in the body. And so there's a, it's, it's a way uh, to move out of that. Right. So let's talk about creativity for a moment. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, people have the idea that, you know, a lot of people say, I'm not creative, right? Mm -hmm. um, But what is, in your opinion, what is the nature of creativity? And what is the purpose of creativity? Oh, that is such a good question. I think the my my inclination is to answer it in almost in in reverse like what what actually inhibits creativity because my my sense is that we come out in this world as creative human beings. I just heard um Robert Duke speak uh well he's brilliant um from the university of of uh Texas i think um and uh he talks about how uh, he w- he will see students in kindergarten and um, go- goes in to ask uh, who wants to do something. And before he even says what that is, every hand in the room is going up. And then fast forward, he sees these same students, you know, in medical school years later, whatever, in graduate school, sorry. And, um, and he asks who wants to do something and every head is down and he goes, what happened to you? Um, in all these years, and he and he says the only thing they all had in common was they went to school, mm. and that uh, unfortunately that uh, well-intentioned educators often end up um, facilitating the sense of self-judgment and um, that interferes. And so there's a beautiful work by uh, Carol Dweck at Stanford on the growth mindset. And the mindset is one of being willing to try things, knowing that there will be mistakes made in the process, and that's how you get better. It's a, it's a belief system. Yes, yes. A fixed mindset says that um, you come into the world with certain capabilities and you can't move beyond that. And so you don't want to try that the fixed mindset person tends not to push themselves very much because they don't want to reveal their limitations. They're also more likely to lie on... Uh, Children with this mindset are more likely to lie on the outcomes of tests, for example. And um, the good news is you can actually build a growth mindset from a fixed mindset with some experiences that, that challenge the thinking. And uh, we've noticed, like, when we work with special education students, for example, a lot of the teachers will say these kids will not participate in their music classes. And when they start... Um, they start having a growth mindset experience like our drumming program, which says there are no mistakes. There's no wrong way to mm-hmm, express yourself mm-hmm. creatively. Uh, all of a sudden they start participating in their music classes too, because they realize they can do it. That, um, that it, it, you know, and sometimes we have people play the drum in the air first, just so you know that your body can do it. And then they, they start drumming. So, a lot of it is what inhibits creativity is really our belief about our, uh, ourselves as creative beings um, that interferes with the participation and the experience of discovering that we are in fact creative. Right, and it seems like training in any art form, music or painting or movement, you know, if it's not 
if it's not strictly prescribed, or even if it is strictly prescribed as you're, as you're learning the classics or as you're learning the basics of, you know, mastering that art form, encourages a certain play, a certain let's try it, a certain what if that, um, that brings forward creativity. Because to me, creativity is, is um, a varietal response, Right. 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 That that you don't have a set response, but that you're willing to court the unknown and you're willing to uh, bring imagination in and that there's that there's literally mm, a practice with variety that right. that then um, carries over into into any other situation in your life therapeutic yeah. or just everyday life, you know, that you that you become within yourself, um, practiced at, Mm -hmm. at, um, attending variety. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and actually you, you reminded me that one of the consequences of trauma is often the loss of the ability to imagine and Mm -hmm. play. Mm -hmm. And, and when we look at the statistics on trauma, it turns out that, you know, the best statistic I've been able to find is somewhere between 15 and 27% of the population has experienced some form of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. And almost two thirds of our public, um, has experienced at least one adverse experience in childhood. So we're a culture of walking wounded people. And if this inhibits our imagination and play, then it's also going to inhibit our creativity. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to offer tools and programs that can help people get past this trauma or manage the trauma. I guess we never recover from trauma, but we, we can learn tools to to manage it when it might pop up. Um, and so, uh, so it's very important to offer these opportunities to help people restore that ability. And a new study, an interesting study um, by Paula Thompson from um, California State University, Northridge, actually um, has shown that adults who, um, who are performing artists with very um, um, strong histories of abuse and trauma um, actually um, thrive in the creative arts. They experience the creative arts more deeply, and they experience it as being much more transformational for them. So there's a little bit of evidence there that suggests that it's, in fact, even more necessary for people who have been through trauma to have a creative outlet. Right, because you are you you can literally transform yourself. You can literally transform how you think about yourself, your experience of yourself, um, move emotions uh, through the artistic experience. Whether you know whether it's about creating the art or whether it's about your ability or willingness to be expressive, you yeah. literally are re- reforming yourself through. Your paintings, through your music, through your drama, through your, through your dance, you become yeah. you become that who you would hope to become. Yes. Now, interestingly, the, these investigators also point out something that um, is is true, which is, unfortunately, 
the flip side is that when the arts are taught with judgment, then the whole thing backfires. Mm-hmm. They, they yes. have more self-judgment. You get triggering of trauma. I've, uh, one of the reasons we started the certificate program is just what we observed in the community. So I've seen instructors, well-meaning instructors say, oh, okay, think of a time you were really sad, and you don't want to do that when <laughs> someone experienced trauma. Or, um, yeah. or forcing people, requiring people to share what they wrote, and then discovering that there's something in it that was too personal and too, and and uh, it was not something that would have been safe for them to read. Or uh, getting into power struggles with adolescents, for example, mm-hmm. by insisting that they follow your rules. And so we teach practical tools for what people are going to encounter in the community. And there actually is no place where you can get this training. Um, we've had people in creative arts therapies take our training, and they say they didn't get this element. They also get a mixture of exposure of mixture of uh, art forms, the best practices in them, which we've discovered that art forms enhance one another. Um, and uh, and because people tend to operate in kind of siloed domains. However, when you start, for example, you and I talked yesterday about mm-hmm. let's add a movement experience to um, enable people to then access the, the, the words within or the feelings um, and, and then do writing or some arts expression afterwards mm-hmm. to really enhance the... Um, and, I, you know, you do that in your own work. Um, you're a writer and you move and uh, you teach continuum. And, um, you know, I think you're kind of a walking example of the power of that integrative force. Absolutely. And like you say, you know, so oftentimes people are um, siloed even in their creativity, even in their art form, right? I'm a painter. Yeah. I'm a writer. I'm a, you know, and, and, and every one of those types of artists have stereotypes that go along with them in terms of, you know, what part of them they, they inhabit. Like, you know, writers are known to sort of live from the neck up and, mm-hmm. you know, they sit all day in a chair and, um, and so uh, their, their own access to their creativity can also be limited. You know, it can be wondrous, but it also could be limited. Could that not be opened by, um, doing some painting, doing some moving, doing some, you know, uh, uh, you know, play, theater play with the with the writing itself to to mix it up, to open it up, to create more variety. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's fascinating when we do our certificate program. We invariably each session have fine artists. Uh, admit that they were quaking in their boots about the theater part, you know, that they knew the theater part was coming, right? And then it ends up being their favorite session. And I think uh, when, when you set it up right and you encourage people and you give them the tools and realize this is just about stretching yourself a little bit. There's no wrong way to do Mm -hmm. this. That all of a sudden the the joy, the enormous joy that comes from realizing that not only that they did it, they've enjoyed it that they that um they've discovered something else now that they can they can do and um and actually this is one of the things that i so firmly believe we see the arts on the chopping block every time there's a district budget crisis or yeah. a state budget crisis 
the arts are often one of the first things to get cut. And my belief is that the reason is because the people making the decisions about cutting them didn't have a positive experience with it when they were younger. Sure. And that I think the arts world would do well to actually embrace a more process-oriented approach at the beginning and then let those who have a passion for it go on to the conservatory work to, to actually you know, take the criticism and, and deal more uh, deeply in the uh, technique or whatever. And I think they would get more mileage in the long run and save themselves. <laughs> the arts world can save itself from uh, being cut by helping to, uh, you know, bring more of the therapeutic elements in earlier. I think um, that's it also such, gives the arts more relevance. It's such a, a beautiful idea and an important one and would serve so many people um, in how they start, uh, well, in how they start life, not just how they start art, how they start, yeah. how they start life. Well, Ping, I could yeah. talk to you, I think, like forever about all of this <laughs> because I am so interested and fascinated in this, um, in this space between art and healing and the process, uh, the, the self-discovery that comes in both. Um, but it's time to wrap up. And so uh, I would like, before we end, for you to tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you, how they can find you, how they can take advantage of the programs that you offer at UCLA Arts and Healing and, and uh, your Expressive Arts Summit and, and all of the things that you're doing. So please tell us. Oh, yes. Thank you. Well, our website is um, UCLA uh, artsandhealing.org, and the A is shared with UCL, UCLA and the word arts, so it's uclartsandhealing.org, and the and is all spelled out. Um, we actually have downloadable free resources, we have videos, we have curriculum manuals that can be bought, and one of our signature um, uh, tasks is actually that we offer scripted materials so that people who don't come from mental health or don't come from a particular art form can actually know how to teach it um, with more integrity. So um, we have uh, training programs. Uh, they tend to be brief and affordable. Uh, we don't turn anyone away who can't afford to pay the full fare. We'll work with people. Um, we uh, also, besides our website, uh, well, our website lists all of our training programs, and we can customize training for people as well. And um, I think I would like to say one other thing, which is um, at our conference, which I can't recommend more highly, um, we had a group singing called the Urban Voices Project, and they consist of people who live on, in, on Skid Row or formerly lived there who um, performed original songs about hope and love and caring, and, um, and uh, they're facilitated by a music therapist and a community outreach organizer and a musician. And what was so deeply moving about the work is to, to discover that the musician, actually the, the leaders of the program, actually go to community health clinics and they actually seek out the most depressed people for this experience mm -hmm. because the experience of singing together in a group is transformative. It builds community. It shifts feelings. It gives a sense of purpose and meaning. And um, that's really kind of where the rubber meets the road, that all this work is aimed at addressing things that are intractable and poorly addressed, like trauma, 
like a social disconnection and social isolation and intolerance. And so that's uh, my parting statement. <laughs> oh, so beautiful, so inspiring. Ping, I thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and your dedication. You are tireless. You are tireless in um, in the way in which you uh, are putting people together and bringing programs forward and helping people. Um, I thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity, Sharon. This has been Passing for Normal, conversations about change. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWeilAuthor.com. You can also find out more about the Changeability books and about all the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Whether creating something new or responding to a changing world, navigating change is the new stability.